0: I preached last week one of two, two weeks that Ant has asked me to do, and I, and I need to just link to that because I shared with the folk who were here last week that in deciding what to preach about, I kept coming back to needing to preach or speak about some of the issues in the book of James. I think it's somewhere that we should spend more time. But I did prefix it by saying that that could be slightly controversial because we've just spent a lot of time in the book of Galatians teaching about grace and about the fact that our faith that our belief in Christ is what we need for salvation, that we can't earn it, that we can't buy our salvation, that we can't retain our salvation through our works, that we are not obligated to works by the law, that we are freed from that by grace, and that our, faith is secu- uh, that our, our salvation is secured because of God's great love for us. We have um, been teaching for some time out of Galatians about the tremendous importance of us understanding the grace of God, that we are no longer bound by the law. And that it seems a bit of a culture shock to go into the book of James. And I mentioned last week that it caused controversy way back. Martin Luther at one point called it the epistle of straw. He said it did not build on the foundation of the Gospels because it seemed to people who just looked at it briefly that there was all this teaching in the epistles of Paul and from the Gospels of the grace of Christ. And then James is very much a person who says you need to do this. And what we spoke about was the evidence in the Bible, not just in the in the Church of Jerusalem, but in the the working with Christ that God's intention through Jesus has always been that people who come to Him grow and become more effective in what they do for the kingdom. That we not that your salvation is secured. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've given your life to him, your salvation is secured. It was not bought by any effort and it will not be retained by that. And God's love for you. Will not increase or decrease because of what you do for him. His love is all encompassing. So when James begins his teaching and others teach about the things that we need to do, that is our response to our salvation. It doesn't secure it. Your salvation is there. What now? And we spoke about what the church was about and about the fact that it's a place where we prepare. We go from being people, if you looked at the disciples, when they first joined Jesus, their role was to observe and to be part of what he was doing and to have fellowship. And they saw what he was doing. But as time went by, by watching what he was doing and by the teachings that he gave them pertinently, and then by sending them out to do things, they became effective. So when the time came, they were ready to take the gospel to the world that needs it so desperately. And that's still the intention of the church. It's not that we stay the same every year. It's that we grow and develop for a purpose. Jesus appointed leadership amongst his disciples. He appointed apostles. You only appoint leaders when you need to lead people to a place where there's a task, where there's something to do. And so I ended last week by talking about the fact that we need to develop ourselves, that we need to use the opportunities that church provides, to use the opportunities that we have to develop ourselves to become effective as disciples, to become productive as disciples. And that was my preamble to enter into the book of James, because he's very direct. And we're only going to have a chance to dabble our toes a bit in the beginning of James this morning. But just a, a quick word, who was he? There has been some debate about which James wrote... The book of James, but it's widely accepted by most theologians that it was James, the brother of Jesus. Referred to in Galatians 1 verse 9, Um, Paul talks about him, and he says, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother, Uh, I assure you that before God that I'm writing to you is no lie. This is when he's been up to go and see the church in Jerusalem. And it's accepted by most that James, the brother of Jesus, took over the leadership of the Jerusalem church from Peter as Peter began to become uh, someone who traveled more and evangelized more, and that James was a leader of the church and the brother of Jesus. If you remember the Gospels, you'll know that there's reference at one point that at one time Jesus' own brothers did not believe what he was about. So James was a convert just like the rest of us. He wasn't born a believer. He accepted the message of his brother Jesus and became an integral part of the leadership of the early church, although he was not counted amongst the apostles and the disciples. Um, Let's just have a look. Let's, Let's start looking at his writings. And let's look at the first chapter of James. If you got your Bibles with you? This is a straight to the point kind of man. This is a man who doesn't mince words. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered amongst the nations. Greetings. And that's all the preamble you get from him. Um, there's, there's no pedigree. There's no, he doesn't talk about himself. He says, greetings. And then he says this, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Wow, he just gets straight into it. Remember, he's writing to people whose salvation is already secured. He's writing to the church. He's not saying this is what you need to get under your belt to qualify. He's saying this is something that you need to know. And he's straight into talking about suffering and trials. Now, this is one of the big debating points in people, people's perception of Christianity. If you talk to people that are not Christians, many of them will cite the fact that they cannot understand Christianity, that there is suffering in the world. If God is so good, why is there suffering? And unfortunately, some evangelical messages create the impression that all you need to do for a happy and successful life and no problems in your life, is accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and have faith, and nothing bad will ever happen. And that's taught in many ways, in many styles. But you don't see evidence of that promise either in the life of the people who followed Jesus during his time or in the preachings of the people who followed afterwards. There is a reality that trials do come into our lives. When people grow up in a Christian environment that says to them that belonging to Christ and having faith precludes them from any kind of trials, damage, or tragedy, the impact on their lives when that kind of tragedy or trial comes into their life is profound. I have a dear, dear friend who currently is going through a real battle in his faith life. He, he's been hit over the last number of years by, by more and, happiness and tragedy than I know that I could bear. I don't know how he's, he's gone through it. Things, everything precious to him at, at some point or other has been damaged. And he's struggling in his relationship with God because I've realized in conversation with him that at the roots of his Christian upbringing was a teaching that said, just trust God and everything will be all right. The Bible doesn't say that. As far back as Psalm 23, it says, though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, it says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. It doesn't say I have no enemies. It doesn't say that there is not death around me, but it says you are with me. And James talks about these trials coming. There's a striking correlation between James's teaching and the Sermon on the Mount. If this is the brother of Jesus that's believed, he's listened to what his brother said. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 22, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. Jesus says to his disciples, If you follow me, there is likely to be challenge along the way. When that happens, rejoice that you have me, and that you're doing this for me. James says, count it pure joy when you go through trials. It sounds strange. I want you to notice that neither of these two people, neither Jesus nor James, says that the evil and the trials are God placing these things on people. In fact, James says uh, further down, if I go back, In verse 22, I think it is, he says, no, it's not there, but he says, do not say that you are being tempted by God. It's verse 13. Let no one say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil. I do not subscribe to the thought pattern that God comes into our lives and sprinkles random evil in our lives to test us. God doesn't deal in evil, but still challenge and trial and evil does come into our life. Some of it comes into our lives because of the activities of people, because God has given us free will, because God has given the world free will and never attracted that. The incredible risk he took in giving Adam and Eve the ability to choose still remains. And some of the trials and evil that come into our lives come as the circumstances of what other people do. Some of the trials and circumstances that come into our lives to challenge us come As James says, because we're drawn away by the evil of our own desires. Some stuff we bring on ourselves. And some challenges that come upon us come because we live in a broken world. When Jesus came, he brought the kingdom of God. He brought salvation and the ability to step into his kingdom and to serve him. He didn't fix the whole world. There are still what are called natural disasters, there are still evil things out there. There is still disease, there is still sickness. These things come into our lives and bring trials and challenges, and there's probably nobody sitting here, no matter how much you love God, who's not had trials and challenges. The problem comes when we begin, when those things come along to say, this is because God doesn't love me anymore. This is because I've done this and this wrong. Well, if you've done, put it right. This is because trials and challenges are part of our life. James doesn't say that God puts them there. Jesus doesn't say he wants them to be there, but they are a reality. But they both say, this is how to respond to it. Rejoice, be strong, go forward. James says to them, rejoice when trials come because they make you stronger. I don't know about you, but I've been sleepless for the last two weeks or nearly sleepless for the last two weeks because I've loved watching the Olympics. I don't know if it's affected your sleeping patterns, but it has affected mine. It's wonderful to see people doing things to the level that they do. I've I've remarked on a couple of occasions, especially watching the high divers. You know, a guy will do this dive and he'll make a splash when he goes in and they go, oh, because he hasn't scored the points that was expected. Tom Daley yesterday, sadly, didn't make it through to the final, although he dived incredibly the day before. You know, even the worst dive that one of those guys makes is incredible. I can't even stand on a 10-meter board and look down at the water. I can't even do a bomb drop from that height. Although I sometimes wonder what it would be like. But they're incredible. They don't get that way through having good intentions. They don't get to do that by reading books. They don't get to do that by having a great theoretical understanding of the sport. They do it by going through trials and tribulations to get themselves there. I don't know about you, but my perception is that there are two sports in particular that seem to thrive on pain, the rowers and the cyclists. When you, when you hear about the training that they go through, it sounds insane. I heard Chris Hoy speaking once about training that the sprint cyclists on the track do to deal with lactic acid buildup in their muscles. And basically what he was saying is, you can't really stop lactic acid building up in your muscles and causing pain. So what you do is you learn to deal with the pain. And they do that by sprinting until they fall off their bicycles and curl up on the ground and cry. Now, I'm not saying we all need to do that. But that's how you get to have that kind of effectivity on the track. Through the trials... And the pain, you become stronger. They inflict that on themselves. We're not told to inflict trials on ourselves. But James says to us, when these things come upon us, when a challenge comes, when something goes wrong, head for what God is calling you to do. Stick with it. And when you've come through the other side, you will be stronger. You might bear scars. You might have suffered loss. You might have been through pain. But you will be stronger. I remember... When I first came to the church speaking to Ant one night over a meal and sharing some things that had happened in our life, and he made the comment that in the lives of many mature Christians that are desiring to serve God, somewhere in in, in the path you will find pain. Somewhere in the path you will find that there's been a need to get through suffering. There's been a need to get through challenge. And it's refocused and changed the way people think. I'm not saying go out and seek trials and tribulations. But James says if you're going forward, there will be resistance. There will be something that will challenge you. And he says don't back off, count it all joy. To say that sounds a bit strange. It's it's actually an incredible thing for a preacher to say. But what it does do when we hear James saying this is right at the beginning of the book, it reveals the personality, the nature, and the purpose of what James is doing. If you want to understand the book of James, and I trust that after we've dabbled into it just a little bit this morning in, in chapters 1 and 2, just two, two issues, and we're busy with one of them, that you maybe have a desire to go and read further. But if you want to read James and understand it properly and understand where he's coming from, you've got to understand this. James had one major purpose in life, and that was the spreading of the gospel. That was people being saved from their sin and brought into eternity of salvation through the message of Jesus Christ. That was first and foremost and dominant in the life of James. Everything else was of less importance. There was no casualness in his relationship. There was no casualness in his expression of his faith. It was a total commitment. If you read in that context, then what he says makes sense. It doesn't always make sense to you and me, because in all truth, our level of commitment probably doesn't match his. Now, in nothing that I say this morning, am I trying to lay guilt on you or guilt on me? That's not what the Bible does. I repeat, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. Sometimes there is conviction. My desire always when I get to speak to people is we need to move on. Wherever you are, that's great. God loves you. Won't love you any more or any less depending on what you do next. He loves you because he's God. Your salvation won't be affected. But we need to move on if we need to fulfill what we've been called to do on this earth. There needs to be growth. And for there to be growth, there needs to be commitment. And the challenge that we have is where is our commitment? What is the level of our commitment? Paul was able to say... In Philippians 1 verse 21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He was saying this, Jesus is my whole life. Jesus is my entire reason for living. For me to live is to serve Christ. If I die, I gain something. I gain eternity. I gain heaven. I, I, I gain freedom from the things that, that Oppressed me, Paul spoke often, not often, he spoke on occasion of a thorn in his side, of things that bothered him. He spoke of the afflictions that he had on occasions. He didn't have an easy life. Shipwrecked, beaten, thrown in prison, persecuted, stoned on one occasion. He says, for me to die is to gain. I go to heaven. But for me to live is to serve Christ. James has the same kind of message. There is a level of commitment that is a challenge to us. Let me put a perspective on it. I have hobbies. I have pastimes. You probably do as well. I enjoy reading. I spend, I'm on holiday now. I'm a school teacher, I'm on holiday. I don't know how many books I've read. I love the invention that is called a Kindle. Because when I finish one, I can get the sequel just by pressing a button. I don't have to go to the library or go and look in the bookshop. So I don't know how many books I've read this holiday without exaggerating, 15 or 20. I love reading. But I fit it in where I have time. Another hobby I have is riding my motorcycle. I love my motorcycle. I sometimes refer to it as as my mistress or my second wife. Sandra's very tolerant of my motorcycle. Part of my midlife crisis. I love riding my motorcycle. I love getting out there. It clears my mind. You meet interesting people. You'd be surprised who ride motorcycles. They're not all dangerous hoodlums. Um, looks can be very deceiving. I was down at a motorcycle cafe called the Ace Cafe. Those of you who know motorbikes know it's a famous motorcycle cafe some years ago, sitting having a mug of tea on what's called the slope. When enrolled, a very radical looking bobber, it's the way you chop your motorcycle sometimes, and seated on the back was a bloke full of tattoos, wearing a vest with chains all over the place, hair down to here, little skid lid on the top, just looked mean. And I just thought to myself, watch out for this guy, he could be dangerous. He pops inside, gets a mug of tea and plumps himself right down next to me. I thought, watch yourself here, yeah, there could be trouble. He sat and watched the bikes come and go for a while and then he turned to me and said, I say, which one of these fine machines belongs to you? It was an investment banker. Um, just chose to dress that way. What I'm trying to say is, I have a hobby that I love. But I ride my motorcycle when work is over, over the weekend, during holidays. I fit it in to the important things in my life. It's not my number one priority. Here's the challenge, forgive me, but is your faith a hobby? Do you fit the will of God into the time that you have available? Do you fit it into your spare time? Do you first do the important things regarding your career, your finances, your social responsibility, your family? And then what's left over? You enthusiastically practice your faith. I'm not a full-time biker. I'm an enthusiastic amateur. i got to ask the question of myself and of you, are we enthusiastic amateurs in our faith? James is sold out. What he writes is, whatever happens in your life, use it to grow stronger in your serving of God in the kingdom of God. And he's at a radical point in that. Now, guys, this is not to lay condemnation on all of us, but the challenge is there. Where are we? How important in making decisions about your career is the will of God? How important in making decisions about your family is, is the will of God. How important in making decisions about your finances is the will of God? Do you first do the other important stuff and then say, right, what can I do with what's left over for God? I'll apply my time in this way and what's left over, I will rejoice in thee and happily give God what's left over. James says, everything. Everything. Not because you have to, not because it earns your salvation, not because it retains your salvation, not because it earns the love of God. I keep repeating this because I need to. God will not love you more because you do more. God loved you when you were still lost in sin. While we were still sinners, the word says to us, Christ died for us. We hadn't earned it a jot or a tittle. And I use frequently the example of the thief on the cross. Take encouragement from the thief on the cross next to Jesus. He'd lived a life of terrible sin. And he was standing, hanging in a point of execution. And he cries out to Christ and he gets full and complete salvation. And Jesus says to him, this day you will be with me in paradise. And all he ever does after that is die. He doesn't do any good works. No restitution, no putting right of what he's done. He doesn't earn a thing, but he goes to heaven. Your salvation is not dependent on this. Your salvation is dependent on faith in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we need to look at the fact that that does not release us from the fact that once we are people serving God, there is a world out there that does not know Jesus. I mentioned last week I quoted some statistics. 9% of the population of this country, claim to be practicing Christians. Fifty-something percent claim to be Christian by cultural background or by tradition. Nine percent claim to be practicing Christians based on the, the measure of attending church at least twice a month. That leaves an awful lot of people who don't know Jesus. Who, if we believe God's Word, are heading for lost eternity. Very simply, we have the answer here, but the answer needs to go from here outwards. And I said last week, we're not going to grow the body of believers because people preach while at church, or because people lead worship while at church. We're going to grow the body of believers because ordinary people, all of us, in our workplace, in our schools, in our colleges, in our universities, see ourselves as having a part to play and a role to play and take that as a priority. Not as a hobby, not as a pastime. James is hard-hitting. Can you see why when Martin Luther read this, having just discovered the message of grace, having uncovered it once more at the beginning of the Reformation in his studies, why he, he looks at the, at the book of James and says, I, I, I can't see this as being important. Grace. Grace is important. Grace is fundamental. Grace is essential. But James has said, okay, now we are saved by grace. What now? Where do we go now? I'm saying to you, do you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You're going to heaven? Yes. Fantastic. I'll see you there. It's going to be great. What about now? What about now? Does a trial or a challenge or some rejection from somebody at work make you never mention your faith again? Does the change in society, can I say this? I don't know, it just popped into my mind now. Young parents, the challenge will come soon from society about your right to raise your child in the Christian faith. It'll come. Society will say, you have no right to impose what you believe on a young child. They will try and they will challenge. These challenges are going to come. What are you going to do? Are we going to step back? Are we going to retreat? Are we going to question the reality of God? James says, count it all joy. I want to look at one more aspect of what James says. I want to read verse 22. And as I say, I'm just dabbling my toes in the book this morning, but I'm hoping I'll inspire you to read some more. He says this, do not merely listen to the word, And so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Remember I said to you there's a parallel between James and the Sermon on the Mount? What did Jesus say on the Sermon on the Mount? He says, someone who hears what I say... And doesn't do it is like a man who builds his house on sand. The person who hears my word and does it is like a person who builds his house with a foundation of rock. And when the challenge comes, the one house will stand and the other one will fall. You know the story, you know the song from Sunday school. There's a parallel here. James is saying this do what you understand, do what you believe. Years ago, I was listening to a missionary who did work in the Himalayas among some of the groups of people in a number of countries there. And he went to a conference of missionaries. It was a group of people in a little hut with one electric light. And the people who were there were totally illiterate people. Many of them didn't have a Bible Many of them could not have read one if they did. But someone had come in amongst their community and preached the gospel to them. And each of them, in their own way, had found a way to share the gospel. One person demonstrated a particular naivety and sophisticated world, and this missionary was, they actually apparently said, Would someone turn out the light? And he walked over to the light bulb and tried to blow it out. He'd never been around a light bulb before. And in talking, this missionary said to somebody else working there, he said, who is this guy? And he said, Oh, he, he goes around and preaches the gospel. He's memorized scripture. He can't read. People have read it to him, and he's memorized it. And he goes around preaching. And he said, has he had any converts? And they said, yes, two or three. He said, two or three people. They said, no, two or three villages." I've traveled several times to Cambodia and to India, and I've met people who have so little to work with. I might have mentioned before a, a, a lady called E, 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 who's in Cambodia. Those who come with us sometimes meet her. The first time I went, some of our group went to the villages around the area to go and do some teaching there. And as they talked to the, the Christians that had come out of these very rural and poor communities, and they spoke to them and they said, how did you get to know Jesus? Most of them said, E, E. He's a labourer who works in the rice fields and slept in a shed at the bottom of her sister's garden. But he was bringing people into the kingdom of God because it was a priority in her life. Because what she knew, she did. I want to say this to you. I said last week, in their absence again, I want to commend Anne to her and Helen for the wonderful job that they do in this church. We are blessed. We are blessed, and we are well fed. We are taught God's word on a regular basis. We have equipping. We have accessibility to equipping. We need to use what we've got. We need to be doers, not just hearers. Not for guilt's sake. Not because of condemnation. Not because you're going to earn your righteousness or your salvation. But because people out there really, really, really need it. And that's where I want to... You know, I have a little thing when I look at this balance between Galatians and James. There's grace, but there's a race. Paul talks about the race and about finishing and running the race. There's grace, but there's a race. And sometimes talks about walking the radical middle path. We need to understand the fullness of grace. I can't remember who it was. But somebody said, if we aren't teaching grace to the point that people accuse us of being light on sin, then we aren't preaching it right because they accused the Apostle Paul of being light on sin because he preached grace so profoundly. At the same time, we can't just take that chapter out of the Bible. We need to look at the examples in the teaching of the Bible that say, right, now you have your salvation. What are you going to do? And I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you. Not from a point of view, have to prove anything, but I want to ask you to do an audit for yourself and say, What can I do? What can I do? How can I grow? How can I use what I've got? How can I make a difference? To be open to the opportunities that God creates, to be open for the times to do what you believe. In your everyday circumstances. I'm not challenging each one of you to go out and be a missionary. Although I have a a dream that at least half of this congregation at some point will come on a short-term mission somewhere and see what it's all about. So begin to think about that. It's a great experience to see what God is doing. But I'm not saying I'm challenging you all to to come to Cambodia or to come to India because that's another dream I have. um, Or to do anything. I'm saying what can you do with what you've got? What can you do with what you've got? How can you put into practice? How can you be a doer and not just a hearer? I want to challenge you. There have been trials. There's been hurt. It's very difficult to go into a church community and not find people who have been hurt by Christians. We hurt each other. Part of the trials is the way we treat each other. Have you been sidelined because you've been hurt? Have you backed down? Have you stood to one side? Have you withdrawn because you've been hurt? Are you angry with someone? Have you been disillusioned? It's a trial. Have you let that trial push you to one side? Or are you getting stronger? Just talking this morning with some of the guys at the back, if you look into the lives of some of the greatest evangelists and mighty men of God, the most famous, you will find that they all flawed. They've all got their weaknesses. They've all got their problems. They've all got their challenges. Have you been hurt by something like that and you've you've seen a famous preacher fall and you've said, I'm stepping back? What trial or tribulation has made you less effective and what trial and tribulation has made you stronger? My challenge to you is Get stronger. Get effective. I'm all for the mobilization of the church. For people not to come into church on Sunday morning and say, I'm here just to have fellowship, just to be fed, just to bless people here. But for people to come in to say, I'm coming also to be equipped. A friend of mine ran a church that had over, I've mentioned it here before, over the door as you left As you went out of the church, written over the door was, you are now entering a place of worship. And the challenge was to take what we have out. And not to be sidelined by the trials and tribulations. But because of the love of God that is within us, because of the gratitude that we have for the great salvation that we have, to become a little bit more like James. He scares me. He does. He scares me. That level of commitment, I feel inadequate. That's not the purpose of why he's writing. He's saying this is the right thing to do. He's not saying, I'll hate you if you don't. He's not saying God will fail you if you don't. He's saying this is the right thing to do. And he's walking ahead. If I can take one step closer, and one person more comes into the kingdom of God, hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so, i leave you with that challenge. Matthew, maybe we can... Finish with a song. Let's pray as they're going up. Lord Jesus, I thank you that as you walked this earth, you loved people. You fellowshiped with them. You ate with them. You conversed with them. You enjoyed times of fellowship and love that you shared in families and friends. The people around you rejoiced in your presence. And yet at all times, Lord, your purpose was the salvation of this world. I thank you, Lord, that when trials came your way and you were tempted, in every way that we could be tempted, that you stood firm because your eyes were fixed on the task that your Father had brought you to do. I thank you, Lord, that when you stood before the cross and you were in Gethsemane anticipating what was coming, And your heart cried out to your Father that you would prefer to do it differently. That you said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I thank you that you were committed. Lord, I thank you that you did what you said and believed. Lord, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here this morning that you'll give us courage that you'll give us courage to step out from the hurt, from the damage that trials and tribulations might have caused, from the anger or the hurt or the fear that has been brought upon us by circumstances or by people, and that we'll come through stronger. I pray, Lord, that you'll stir in our hearts the courage to be doers of your word. Lord, I pray that you will flood our hearts with your love that we won't do this out of fear, that we won't do it out of obligation, that we won't do it out of condemnation, but we will do it because we love others and we see the need in their lives. Lord, I pray that nothing that I've said this morning will cause condemnation or cause guilt or cause a pressure that's ungodly. Pray, Lord, rather that it will stir and encourage and inspire and that it will accomplish your purpose. We love you, Lord. Amen.